that's plenty of time for you to find Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read this morning and extend it, but we haven't been here for a month, so that's the reason for the video to bring us up to speed. We're making our way to the book of Hebrews, and I want to go back and pick up the 11th verse of chapter 5, and I'm going to read through the 12th verse of chapter 6. But this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. What is it that he has much to explain? Verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. About this we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, but not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, implication, let us, notice the plural, the community, let us leave the elementary, that is the ABCs of doctrine of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and from faith toward God and of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. I want you to underline that or highlight that on your screen. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come, and they have fallen away. Now connect it to the verse. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and they're holding Him up to contempt. Now he gives an illustration from agriculture. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. It receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that are belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, the word is lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The year 2021 was in the news re, uh, called the year of the great resignation. According to statistics last year, 38 million people resigned their jobs. Some of you are part of them. You're a statistic. A friend over coffee a week ago said that the year 2021 was also the year of purification or the purging of the church. 
He said, have you noticed how many have not returned at the end of the COVID step back? That God in his wisdom and grace has, as it were, cleansed the church. In 2019, a survey nationally said 14% said they have never, they never attend church. Last year, 53% said they have not attended church. In 2021, one in five regular church attenders have stopped attending the fellowship. There are four excuses or explanations or causes to their departure. Vance Havner said a an excuse is just a lie with the skin of truth stretched around it, so we'll take it for what it's worth. One is the ex- access of content without connection. If you just want to hear the Bible taught, the Bible Project guys are a whole lot more creative than we are. And you can hear Charles Stanley, and you can hear David Jeremiah, and Chuck Swindoll, and you just go and uh, Alistair Begg without ever having to make a trip to Ohio. Or, you know, so the access to the content that is essential to the feeding of the soul is available in many ways. And you can do it without the risk of getting your feelings hurt or having somebody ignore that you're there or offending you casually or intentionally in any way. That's excuse number one. Excuse number two is the church's obsession with attraction rather than their commitment to equipping the saints for the works of ministry. Putting on programs and shows, trying to crank it up another notch. Attended a service not that long ago where uh, we're so far behind the thing. is like, there was like, a, I wanted to run and grab a fire extinguisher because there was smoke coming out of the keyboard or something. And We just want to draw a crowd. We don't want to transform lives, change people. The third excuse is that Christians are mean on social media. And you don't have to be on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook very long to realize that our testimony has not been maintained very purely. We've turned off more than we have attracted. And the fourth is is that the church got caught up in political ideologies rather than the practical biblical theology. They say that the church is divided over this party or that party rather than they're united around the truth of the word. There's a movement, you're probably aware of it, it's called the deconstruction of faith. Many big-name individuals have, so much so that the Gospel Coalition actually published a small book with multiple authors speaking to this deconstruction of faith movement. In there is an illustration of one John Steingard, who was a member of a Christian band and all, and he wrote, after growing up in a Christian home, being a pastor's kid, playing and singing in a Christian band and having the word Christian in front of most of everything in my life, I am now finding that I no longer believe in God. Pastor Troy and I sat with hundreds of worship leaders a few years ago at a national conference hosted by a megachurch on the East Coast. 
entrusted with the senior pastor leadership role by the founder of the church and his mentor, this 30-year-old evangelical influencer had stirred an incredible following. Virtually everything that was visible to those of us in the attendance was enviable. He led effectively, it seemed, for 11 years. But slowly, the hidden side began to surface. He left his ministry role to move all the way across the country and up into Canada in order to finally attend seminary. By the time he had completed his course of studies, he had ended his marriage of 19 years. Following the announcement of the termination of his marriage, this former pastor of an East Coast megachurch and best-selling author of Christian books went on to write, The information that was left out of our announcement is that I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. Josh Harris, Sovereign Grace Covenant Life Church. I kissed dating goodbye. The deconstruction of faith is not a new movement at all. It's not an unprecedented concern. The Apostle to the Hebrews addresses it repeatedly in his letter 2,000 years ago. There are five warnings given as we are introduced in the video to three of those. The first one is chapter 2, verse 1. There is a warning about disregarding God's Word. In chapter 3, verse 12, there's a warning about doubting God's Word. In chapter 5, verse 1, there is a warning about departing from God's Word. In chapter 10, verse 26, there's going to be a warning about despising God's Word. And finally, in chapter 12, verse 25, there is a warning about denying God's Word. The strategy of Satan from Genesis 3 onward is to raise doubts about the authenticity and the clarity of the Word of God. Now, the presenting symptoms to a deconstruction of faith, according to the text, fall into three categories in chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, and verse 12. They are spiritual apathy, sort of a yawn, sort of the initial rush and joy and thrill of the early days of faith is worn off. They're spiritual ambiguity, a willingness to consider many options or other interpretations, multiple approaches to the vain topic, or the third one is outright apostasy, chapter 6, verse 4 to 8. Every author that I read on Hebrews 6 said that verses 4 through 8 are the most difficult verses in all of Hebrews to interpret and to understand. Happy New Year. <laughs> Mark Dever, pastor's Capital Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., wrote the book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, said, the first mark of a healthy church is expositional preaching. It's not only the first mark, it is far and away the most important of them all. Because if you get this right, 
all the others should follow. Last September, I went to a conference down at Midwestern Baptist Seminary where Dr. Jason Allen, the president, for, it's called the For the Church Conference, began the conference with these words, the most important ingredient to church health is true biblical preaching, the word. A deconstruction of faith begins when we begin to isolate ourselves from the truth of the word. It's going to be blunt. As we move into our 29th year, coming to the end of our 29th, my greatest burden for Faith Bible Church is that we might one day become Bible light. That, that there are other things that speak to our soul, that, that find greater attraction, that stir us more than just simply hearing the Word of God. That's the concern of the author. So he, he gives us a prescription on how to protect ourselves from that exact danger. And the first one is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 that, that we would desire to actually grow in the Word. He says in chapter 5 verse 13 that it is called the Word of Righteousness. Spiritual growth results from devoting your mind and your heart to this book. The word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let us go on. He is not instructing us to forget about the foundation. What he is saying is, the foundation is well laid, now build on it. Do something more. Just a, a foundation. My, my sister and brother-in-law retired from pastoring in McCook, and they, they, they bought a, a pristine piece of property, or actually a house in Sydney, Nebraska. They got a $235,000 house for $132,000, brand new, never lived in, because a developer had started a whole development but ran out of money and Cabela's left town. And all around them are foundations without walls. That's what he's talking about. Don't just leave the foundation. Don't leave the foundation. Build on the foundation. And, and so what he describes here are the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, Christianity 101. He, he, he describes them in couplets. The first two deal with the believer's conversion, which involves repentance from dead works and faith toward God. It's recognizing that the very best that I can do, or as the prophet Isaiah said, all of my righteous deeds are but filthy rags. They're disposable. There is no work that I can do that will ever bring me into right relationship. The, the foundation of the Christian life is recognizing that there is nothing I can bring to Christ except an empty hands, a desperate need. And when I do that, I turn from trusting myself toward faith toward God. It's leaning fully and completely and only on Him and what He provides. So we begin with the believer's conversion, and then we move to the believer's inclusion in the, follow, in the family, in the group. He, he describes this as the instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. The washings is plural. We could spend weeks just unpacking these 
If you want to read about it, I'll loan you some books on it. But the bottom line comes down is that the Jewish system, and these are mostly Hebrews to whom he's writing, had a series of washings or cleansings that were nothing more than a recognition that defilement by exposure to the world makes one unworthy to come into God's presence. So they had a whole hand-washing thing before they would eat meals. And you remember the, the scribes and the Pharisees said to Jesus, he said, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they eat? Sounds like my mother. Tom, you didn't wash your hands? Go in and wash your hands. But it was ceremonial. When we were there in Israel, they, they actually have some of the wealthy ones actually have their own, as it were, baptistries. They had, they had steps down into a pool and then steps up. So before they would go in to eat a meal or go into a home, they would take off their garments and they would walk through the pool and up the other side, dry off and put on clean garments. The, the washings in this case, it has to do with the baptism, I believe, the recognition, the when baptism is a recognition that I am defiled by sin, it doesn't do anything to cleanse the inner soul, but it is a testimony of recognition that I need cleansing. And then the laying on of hands, which is either for identification as an accepted member of the body, or perhaps as a recognition of a special calling to ministry, or as you're reading through the book of Acts, with the laying on of hands for the recognition that you are now as a believer, the recipient of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I lined up all of the commentaries that I had and I couldn't come to a final conclusion. The point is, is that in the Christian life, there is a point of beginning where I'm not only saved by grace, but I am saved into a fellowship of the saints. It is not simply a system of essential beliefs, but it is also a community of faith. Notice how he started in verse 1. Therefore, let us, plural, the apostle doing the writing and the saints to whom he's writing, let us build on top of this Christianity 101 faith. And then the third one is the believer's expectation where he talks about the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. Those two things looking forward, we call it eschatology. Many years ago, I received a phone call from a man who had, uh, had endured a couple of sermons that, uh, on, online that we had listed there, and he called up to say, I, I think you're messing the gospel up, and I have family members that go to your church. And I said, that's a serious thing. What is it? And he said, you seem to include the resurrection as part of the gospel presentation. And I said, yes, we do. Without that, there is no hope. And I mean, it turns out he's a pastor across town. And I took him through the book of Acts. And I know I said, 24 times they declared that ye, God raised him. You killed, God raised him from the dead foundation to our faith is the resurrection of the dead. There is a resurrection for everyone. When Martha stands talking to Jesus with her heart broken about her buried brother Lazarus, Jesus said, your brother will live again. And she says, I know that he will live in the day of the resurrection. And Jesus said, but I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There is a resurrection for everyone who dies. All of them to stand before the righteous judge. That's a foundational truth. We don't debate that. But there is also the promise of a future eternal judgment. But for the believer, 
We look forward to the day of standing before the righteous judge and we stand there with no fear. Why? Because the thing that we would be condemned for, the thing that we would be judged for, the penalty for that's already been paid. The judge's son stepped forward and said, I'll pay the debt. I'll die in their place. So, believers' conversion, believers' inclusion in a fellowship community, and the believers' expectation for the promises of God in the future, that's the foundation upon which we build. And so the apostle here says, we're going to move on beyond, we're going to build on top of this foundation, verse 3, if God permits, which is the recognition that no matter how articulate you are, no matter how passionate you are, no matter how clear you are, it's only God that can change a heart and a soul. You can't argue somebody into heaven. You can't argue somebody into faith in Jesus. You can share the good news with them, but it is this living word. We are saved by hearing this living word. Word. So, he says, if God allows us, we're dependent on the Spirit to do a work in the fellowship, we're going to take this foundation, Christianity 101, and we're going to build on top of that, should the Lord permit. And then we come to the great warning text. The one that every author says is the most difficult of all to interpret. But the key word here is impossible. So no matter how you interpret it, and I'm going to just throw out four possible interpretations of it, and so I don't want to divide the church into debates and all that about which one is right or wrong. I think some of them carry more weight than others, but there is no actual interpretation of it that is trouble-free as far as the details of interpretation. They all have problems. The unnerving part is they they didn't go home with a copy of verses 4 through 8 and unpack it word by word. They, they were listening, and they went home and talked about it. And God is the author. He spoke it, and he, I told him this week, you could have been more clear, you know? It's like, but then a lot of authors wouldn't have had anything to write about. I mean, the, the reality is, is those who heard it understood it. We're struggling to understand it. This is what he says. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, that is, that the, the awareness of their sinful condition and the provision of God has been brought to them. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They saw what it is. Jesus is that gift. He said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you knew what it is, the gift of God stands before you. If you knew who it is, you would have asked for, is you, they have tasted of the gift, they have seen what the saving grace of faith in Jesus will do, and they have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have literally seen what happens when God in the power of the third person begins to move in a life and to transform it, and they have tasted the goodness, the beauty of the Word of God. They have been there when the Scriptures have been expounded and explained, and they have been convicted by the amazing unity of it, Genesis to Revelation, and its clarity of message all about one, that is Jesus. And they have also tasted the powers of the age to come. They have witnessed the healings, the physical healings, the resurrections from the dead, the transformation of lives from 
you know, rejectable, unsavable pagans to saints walking by faith in Jesus. They've seen all of that, but they've fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. That's the message. It's impossible. It's a scary warning to be sure. Be warned. Now, some of the proposed interpretations of that are, one, that he is speaking of authentically saved people who are subsequently lost. My bride was raised in that theological camp. We call it daisy theology. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. This is my, my father said he never went to sleep until he was 19 years old without fearing that he had forgotten to confess some sin that he had committed. And therefore, if Jesus came during the night or he died, he would end up in hell and not in heaven. There are some that teach that. The problem with that interpretation is it flies in the face of so many other texts of Scripture. What can separate us from the love of God? Romans chapter 8. Jesus, John chapter 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would what have everlasting life. Eternal life, everlasting life means nothing if you can lose it. So, we'll scratch that one off. It could be professing believers who are never truly saved. And I would say that my heart tends to lean toward that one a bit. That there are those of us in the gathering that if we ask the people up and down the road from you, they say, well, of course they're believers. Of course they walk with Jesus. I would say most people would have said about, about me until I was 21 years old. That, well, of course Tom's a believer. He's the son of a pastor. He's the nephew of preachers. He's the grandson of a pastor. He goes to church. He memorizes Bible verses. He's got an attitude. But apart from that, it seems like it's okay. But they've never... My illustration there would be Judas who was actually sent out as part of the 70 and also part of the 12 and was given the power to cast out demons and to heal. And yet Jesus called him the son of perdition. He never believed, but he faked it so well that they trusted him with the treasury of the group. And when he went out, having already exposed himself as the betrayer, they thought he was just going to give alms to the poor. Another interpretation is that it is saved persons who are backsliding. And it's just a wake-up call to them. You understand there is no plan B. If you walk away from this Jesus and his sufficient full accomplishment on the cross, there's nowhere else to go. Don't walk away. And the more popular probably is that it is a serious warning against apostasy, but it's an impossible thing. You, You cannot, once you are welcomed into the family by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your forever family. It's your home. You belong, and you never lose that, but you need to understand what a glorious blessing and privilege it is. Yeah, I'm either on B or D. A serious warning about apostasy. The problem with that one, just going to put it here, and then we got to move on because the clock keeps moving, but we don't have a second service, so you're in good shape. The problem with it is all of those descriptives are used of authentic, genuine believers. And so as you grapple with your favorite interpretation, recognize that you can't just write it off as, well, it wasn't for real. It is for real. 
The bigger question is for you. If you have heard the wonderful story that God's Son loved you enough to pay your penalty on the cross, to die where you deserve to die, and you have seen the joy of lives transformed by the living work of the Holy Spirit, and for a season you're drawn to that, you, you want that for yourself, but now you're considering maybe it's not that real or that important, and you're about to walk away, don't lose the emphasis of the verses. It is impossible to lead you to repentance again. There's only one Savior. There's only one salvation. If you walk away from Him, you have nowhere to go. He gives a illustration. There's one seed, there's one rain, and there's two soils. So he goes to the agricultural world. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. I think of James chapter 1. All good gifts come down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no shifting or shadow. It receives the rain. Both adjacent properties get the same amount of rain, have the same possibility. But on the one, it bears thorns and thistles. It's worthless and it's near being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Obviously, he is speaking in terms of Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, where rather than curse the man in the garden, he cursed the ground on behalf of the man. And he said that it will grow thistles and thorns and you will support your family by the sweat of your brow. And then he goes on to say, it is it end is to be burned. By that, I don't mean to burn it off, to purify it so that you can plant it again. It is a soil that has proven not to be healthy and productive. It's just going to produce weeds year after year. It's had the same opportunity, heard the same word, received the same outpouring of God's generous grace, but it did not respond. They burn it for what reason? to keep the weeds from growing up, getting seed heads on them, and being blown by the wind into the adjacent property, which is producing spiritual fruit. From the look on your face, I just lost about half of you right there. We ought to move on. It's a warning. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, if they have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Why? Because in their walking away, they crucify Christ again. When you've been given an opportunity to trust Him, and you leave and you don't, you have to take your stand with one team or the other. And in that moment, you are standing with those who stood before Pilate and said, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Strip Him down. Beat Him shame him, and hang him on the cross. You've only got two choices. You either love him because he is your Savior, or you curse him because you don't need a Savior. It's as simple as that. So, the next prescription is a dedication to ministry and service. 
Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, speaking, he says, this is sobering. Everybody's like, whoa, is he talking about me? He says, I have this confidence in your case. He uses the word beloved. The word beloved appears 69 times in the New Testament. Only here in the book of Hebrews. But it's, a, it's an affectionate word. It's a, a word of love and kindness. He is declaring that he is confident that the majority of those receiving this word are not those who have fallen away. They are just gone to sleep and gotten lazy. The first time, nine times, the word beloved is used, by the way, in the New Testament. It's the father speaking about his son. It's that kind of a term of endearment. We, sure, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work or the love that you have shown in his name by serving the saints as you still do. We have a God who promises, uh, Psalm 103, he will remove our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. A God who is willing to forgive and forget all our offenses against his holiness because of what Jesus did for us, but he is also a God who will never forget the smallest ministry, act, deed of kindness and love that you have demonstrated toward his name by ministering to his saints. He keeps a perfect record. You might have spent your whole career in the preschool or somewhere on the janitorial cleaning team, and you come and go and nobody notices, but God notices you have a God, the encouragement to press forward, to build upon, is that God is keeping perfect accounts, perfect records, and he will reward you for your faithfulness. He is not going to forget this act of kindness, this work, this love that you have shown toward his name. And then it's the devotion to love. Notice it is motivated not by duty, but by commitment. By an affection for, not an affection for others. See, the hardest part about being in a community of faith is a lot of us are not very lovable. When Jesus was recommissioning Peter in John chapter 21, he did not say to him, I want you to go and shepherd my lambs, tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep, because you love the sheep. He set it up by asking him the question, do you love me? This apostle says the same thing. It is your love for the master that motivates your ministry to the master's people. It's a devotion to love. Love for Christ produces a love for others. And then the fourth one is, is it a discipline to endurance? Notice he calls it here, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Finish strong. Press on. Do the work. The full assurance of hope. Hope is not a word of speculation. It is a word of expectation. My confidence is in one who is faithful. And on the basis of that, even though the journey today is hard, the road is challenging. In spite of that, I serve one who is faithful. He says in Colossians chapter 2 this way, that their hearts might be encouraged to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then number five, designed to follow. 
Notice verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, or your translation might say lazy, but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just very quickly, let me point out to you that this trilogy description of the maturity of saints, the mark of a mature Christian is faith, hope, and love. You see it in all the epistles. He ties it here, love in verse 10, hope in verse 11, and faith in verse 12, so that you might not become lazy, but you chart your course, you walk in a manner of those who are examples to you of faith and patience because of the inherited promise that is theirs. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, be imitators of me. He said again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he said, walk in a manner that you see us walk and others that are mature also walk. He will tell you in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, he said, set the elders of your fellowship before you as an example. Walk as they walk. He is saying, choose your heroes carefully and you will continue to grow until you receive the guaranteed inheritance. Got to move forward. Love is the biblical expression for an outward Christianity. As you grow and build on the foundation of Christianity 101, you will learn to care for those around you. How do I do that? Only as the Word of God inspires your actions. Faith is the upward expression of your Christianity. The only way that in the midst of the darkness and the challenges you can continue to hold on believing is if you immerse your heart and your mind in the Word. Only God's Word can sustain your faith and hope. Hope is that inward expression of Christianity 101. It's the unwavering confidence that I have rested all of my trust in one who is faithful. He will always keep his word. And the only way I can know that is if I am continually in the scriptures and have it fuel again my hope. I'm editing on my feet. The difference, indifference toward the Word of God is the first step toward spiritual decay. And according to chapter 5, verse 11, they have already taken that step. About this we have much to say. It's hard to explain. Since you have become lazy, dull of hearing. But the truth that he wants to hammer away is this. Only Christ Jesus is big enough to assure you of the ultimate hope because only Christ is big enough to one day undo everything that is broken about this world. One author said it this way. I love this. Jesus is a hell-defeating, fire-extinguishing, life-giving king. You want to hear Jared... Wilson preached that. He'll be preaching here in February. So let me sum it up this way. What are we supposed to do to reconstruct our faith? How do I avoid deconstructing my faith? Number one, build on the basics. 
Don't abandon the basics. Remind yourself these truths are non-negotiable. This is the foundation upon which I live. Second, depend on the Spirit. If God wills, it's the work of God. It's not the work of the flesh. Number three, some of you need to do this. Confirm your faith. Are you a possessor or a mere professor? If you don't embrace Christ, there's nowhere else to go. Number four, desire that your life be fruitful. God, I want my life to count for something more than the stuff that I will leave behind when I call me home. Number five, begins by loving Jesus. Not loving ministry, not loving service, not even loving the book. It begins by loving the author of the book. Number six, commit yourself to sacrificially serving others. And finally, choose your heroes carefully. The saddest thing about the last three or four years in evangelical Christianity is that so many big-name ministers, notables, have publicly deconstructed their faith to the incredible damage of a generation who are looking for life and hope. If you're a seasoned saint, for heaven's sakes, finish strong. If you're a young saint, be careful who you make your heroes. We're over time, but we got a great song to close, so you'll be okay. When Lincoln Berean was going to plant North Point Church years ago, um, Pastor Brian took me out to lunch, and we talked about, is it possible that Faith and Brian could do that together? And we were sitting in the fireplace room at Laszlo's, and I said, Brian, if any church in town was equipped to do a simulcast remote church. You're the guys. And I'll never forget Brian's answer. He said, Tom, what I am as a pastor at Berean is not simply what you see on the platform. It's how I respond to my daughters when they come with questions right before church begins. It's how I treat Patty when I don't think anybody is watching. It's how I relate to the individual sheep that God has put into my fold. When you do remote Christianity, you only know about that individual what they want you to know. When it gets up close and personal, then you've got a model to emulate. For the seasoned saints of Faith Bible Church, for heaven's sakes, let's walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And for the young saints at Faith Bible Church, 
identify somebody that is what you want to be when you grow up like Jesus. And the third, if you're not sure, if you're not sure that if you were to die tonight, that when you woke up, you would be in the presence of the Savior. Let me urge you to resolve that issue today. There is no other plan. There is only one. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. And no one can come to the Father except by Him. For those that are immature Christians, grow up. For those who are asking the question, come to Jesus.